Welcome to Question Period. I'm Evan Solomon. On our program today, political interference. I am very, very comfortable that there was no interference in, in this case. This is uh, disgusting to know that the Prime Minister and his office would use the death of Canadians for his own political gain. Did the federal government and the RCMP commissioner interfere in the Nova Scotia mass shooting investigation to push gun control measures? Is an investigation needed to get to the bottom of it? The government house leader Mark Holland joins us on that. And then, defense deficit. As our threats evolve, so must our defensive capabilities. After years of neglect, Canada finally invests billions of dollars to modernize NORAD. But is it going fast enough? And is Canada prepared for a real threat of war? Canada's Chief of the Defence Staff, General Wayne Eyre, drops in today. And then, trucker redux. Our job is to listen to Canadians. We don't always have to agree, even with what they're talking about. Why did more than 20 Conservative MPs meet with some trucker protest organizers last week on Parliament Hill? And are divisions and dysfunction in the Conservative Party really as toxic as one MP recently described? We'll speak to the interim Conservative leader, Candace Bergen, on all that and more. Plus, overturning Roe v. Wade, killing the Keystone Pipeline as gas prices shoot up. Can Canada really rely on the U.S. as a friendly neighbour? We'll sit down with the U.S. Ambassador to Canada, David Cohen. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. The political heat is on as the federal government heads into the summer with a full tank of burning issues. There's inflation surging to 7.7%, the highest point in nearly 40 years. Long lineups at passport offices, no sign that's going away. But now there's something even more radioactive. Allegations of political interference into the 2020 Nova Scotia mass murder of 22 Canadians. According to the Mass Casualty Commission, that's investigating the tragedy. Handwritten notes from the RCMP Superintendent Darren Campbell, who was working the case, allege that the RCMP Commissioner herself, Brenda Lucky, pressured his officers to release information about the firearm used by the perpetrator. Superintendent Campbell wrote that Lucky has, quote, promised the Minister of Public Safety and the Prime Minister's office that the RCMP would release this information. Campbell's notes also say that Lucky stated, quote, this was tied to pending gun control legislation that would make officers and the public safer through this legislation. So in response, Commissioner Lucky wrote, I would never take actions or decisions that could jeopardize an investigation, and I did not interfere in the ongoing investigations into the largest mass shooting in Canadian history. And the Prime Minister has also insisted his government did not interfere. Check this out. We did not uh, put any uh, undue influence or pressure. It is extremely important to highlight that it is only... Um, it is only the RCMP, it is only police uh, that determine what and when to release information. But if all that's true, why did an RCMP superintendent write all this in his notes? Should there be an independent investigation as the opposition is demanding? Let's find out. Joining me now, the government house leader, Mark Holland. Good to have you back on the program. Can we start with the allegations of political interference? The Liberals voted against a Conservative motion to require the PMO to provide answers on these allegations. Why not? Doesn't this merit an investigation? Well, two things. Let me first say uh, that the tragedy that occurred uh, in uh, Nova Scotia was uh, horrific. And there was not a person in the country who was not horrified uh, by what we saw there. Uh, and I think uh, it redoubled everyone's effort um, to make sure that nothing like that uh, would ever happen again. 
Now, uh, the, the minister, uh, Minister Blair, has been unequivocal. He's answered uh, these questions very clearly that no political appearance uh, did occur. Uh, the commissioner, um, uh, 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 Commissioner Lecky, also uh, made it very clear in her comments uh, that no political appearance uh, occurred. Uh, and I have tremendous confidence in both of those people. They've made clear and unequivocal statements. But, but why, just, uh, I'm just trying, why take their statements out of at face value? And, and I, I ask you because, of course, they're going to say that because if they didn't say that, she'd be forced to resign if that would be tantamount to political interference. And it raises the question, why would a superintendent, a well-respected member of the RCMP, put in writing in police notes that the Mass Casualty Commission reported that the Prime Minister's office and the Minister of Public Safety, um, that she promised them to release this information. Is Superintendent Campbell lying? Look, I don't, I don't know uh, what would have uh, happened in the conversation between the commissioner uh, and her subordinates, um, but I do know um, the commissioner uh, and, uh, and her work, uh, her professional career. I do know uh, Minister Blair and his long career in policing. Um, there is a, a very important principle um, that uh, there is a wall uh, that exists right. between policing uh, and uh, politics, and that has always been respected, and whether or not as a police chief or as a but it's not. police I mean, officer. I, but I get that. Like, I know how the system's supposed to work. You know how it's supposed to work. The public knows how. But according to these police notes, contemporaneous police notes, which are often used in evidence in cases, as you know, the system doesn't appear to be working. And you said a key word there, Mr. Hall, and you said, I don't know what happened. No, no, that, I said that, that I don't, no, 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 let me, let me be clear, Evan. I said, and it would be inappropriate for me to know uh, the conversations uh, that occurred between uh, the But he had, but you have evidence of it. My point is, we have evidence but no, but of I a conversation. Think, look, so I, I'm, my point is, yeah. my point is, again, you may believe Commissioner Lucky or you may believe Minister Blair, and they may be telling the truth. I don't know, and you don't know. All we know is we have a, enough. Uh, uh, evidence of a, you know, a respected superintendent, doesn't that meet the threshold of providing, let's, and then if there's nothing to hide, let's investigate, have an independent no. investigation, and find out. Why not? Yeah, well, Evan, I would say that, you know, when you take a look at uh, what we ran on in the last election, uh, and uh, it was very clear uh, on to end, uh, to put a ban on assault-style weapons, uh, we talked about uh, them not having a place in our community, that everything that we're doing with respect uh, to gun control are things that we ran on and were publicly broadcasting long in advance. Um, so there was, uh, there's no doubt that, that, that those intentions were already put in place. Uh, and as I said, uh, the commissioner, uh, who has a stellar reputation, uh, and uh, Minister Blair, who has a long career in policing, both have made a comment uh, 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 stating unequivocally uh, that there was uh, not undue interference. Inflation, the top concern. Parliament's risen. The finance minister um, said that she's got a, a, an affordability plan, but let's be clear, that affordability plan was in the April budget, and that in the April budget, it did not predict 7.7% inflation. So it's out of date from an inflationary projection point of view. Will Canada join other countries and try to introduce some kind of, for example, it might be some material overall, but at least help consumers and do something like uh, um, rebate the gas tax or take it off, have a gas tax holiday? Well, let's take a look at a couple of things. One, um, we are in a global circumstance um, that has been created by coming out of COVID and also by Vladimir Putin's uh, war in the Ukraine. 
Uh, it means that inflation uh, is a global phenomenon. Uh, we made critical investments in things like childcare uh, to make that affordable for Canadians in every single province and territory across the country, uh, cutting costs in half and eventually reducing it to ten dollars a but day. But what about now? So we're like, doing, I, I and then, that, and then, but and then, no, 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 but just. Yeah, and I think you know when we take a look at um, you know cutting uh, uh, cutting taxes on gas, we have no guarantee that those savings will be passed on to consumers, uh, and that uh, and, and in fact you know we have every reason to believe that they could just be pocketed by uh, by oil and gas companies and not pass them along. We need things that are guaranteed to deliver. Uh, for Canadians, and that's why we passed so many different measures to make life more affordable and everything but, but do you from think housing it's to childcare to like, housing. Yeah, I, I, it is. I, I, mean, I, I understand, no, I understand I, on those, but you still got 7.7% inflation, the highest in 40 years. Like, yeah. is it, It's hard to sit back on your laurels and say, we've done it all, enjoy no, no, it, because no. Canadians are feeling at the grocery store, they're feeling no, it paying the rent, they're feeling it at the gas pump, like it, they're getting killed every day, you know that. No, absolutely. Look, Evan, there's no question that, um, that the cost of living is a real challenge for Canadians, and it's felt across the board. It's a real problem for, uh, for, for, all, for everybody in an international community. Fortunately, Canada is better off than some, but that, than, than most, actually. But that's not enough, right? Um, you know, Canada has always led the world, and Canada will continue to lead the world. There is a question of what looks like total incompetence at the passport offices. You've seen it in places in Quebec, people waiting for hours, people camping outside to get their passport renewed. I spoke to the head of the union in charge of passport workers, and he told me this. He said, we warned the government months ago to hire more staff. They didn't do it. So this was, we foresaw that. Two, the government saying they've hired 600 people. Not all those people are actually um, allowed to issue a passport. They don't have the 12-week required training. That's not going to help. And he said the work environment is so unsafe now that many of our workers are going to exercise their right and potentially not go show up to work or because they feel unsafe will slow things down more. How did it get so bad and how your government's got to be accountable for this? How did it miss this and, and when's it going to be fixed? Uh, and of course, what happened is you have two years of people not renewing passports, uh, and then all of a sudden, all of two years worth of passports happening in a couple of months. And as much as there, we could know uh, that people were going to come back, you don't know exactly when that's going to occur, uh, and you have to deal with two years of backlog all at once. This is why. Uh, but the union most says countries, they warned but just, you guys about it. No, no. So I'm I'm coming to that. Most countries in the world. Um, are dealing with this circumstance where there are incredibly long, much longer waits to get passports. We're getting through this as quickly as we possibly can. It is an enormous challenge um, to have every uh, two years of work happen in two months. And I understand that that is frustrating, and I can understand uh, for people who are trying to get a passport right now that they are frustrated. Uh, but Minister Gould um, is, uh, is doing incredible work with her department to make sure that we clear through two years of work in, in, in a couple of months and that we return to a state of normal. I'm asking for, um, for some patience. I understand yeah. that it's challenging and difficult, but we're getting back to normal. We're getting through this, and it was yeah. all part of this journey. I, I mean, I don't know if it's all part of the journey. I mean, I don't think it's deterministic. I think people hold elected officials accountable to make things better. Um, but I've got to leave it there. I know it's a long summer break. You've just been through uh, the parliament is, has risen. Uh, so hit the barbecue circuit. I, I always appreciate you joining us, sir. Thank you so much. Thanks, Evan. Great to talk. All right. When we come back, getting defensive. Will a massive new upgrade to NORAD actually go fast enough to keep Canada safe from new threats from Russia and China. The Chief of the Defense Staff, General Wayne Eyre, joins us on that and lots more. Stay right here.
with question period. Bolstering Canada's defense. Look, in the face of evolving missile threats from countries like Russia and China, Canada's finally answering a call that's been years in the making. The federal government is spending nearly $5 billion over the next six years to upgrade NORAD, the Joint Defense Command, between Canada and the U.S. Now, part of the overhaul includes replacing the North Warning System that's been in place since the 80s. The move to modernize NORAD comes ahead of a NATO summit in Madrid this week. So, what will the upcoming NORAD upgrades mean for the safety of Canadians? Is it coming fast enough? And what are the biggest threats facing our country right now? Let's find out. Joining me now, the Chief of the Defense Staff, General Wayne Eyre. General, first of all, thanks for your service and thank you for, for joining us. It's stylish to say that the world has changed and everything's different from a security uh, posture right now. Um, how would you describe the threat environment to Canada right now vis-a-vis -vis a year ago? So, Evan, firstly, uh, thank you for having me here today. Yeah, I would say on the February, February 24th, uh, the world changed. Um, and what we're facing now, history may view as a turning point, uh, but it's going to be a world that is characterized by confrontation. Confrontation between authoritarian states on one part and liberal democracies on the next. So the real challenge we're going to be facing is, is maintaining our liber liberal democracies, maintaining the institutions of these democracies, and deterring um, adventurism from, uh, from other parties. What are we missing in the war? A lot of folks say, well, look, we, we hear from President Zelensky. Boy, is he winning the communications war? Yeah, but Russia's not going anywhere. They've recommitted uh, in the eastern part. Uh, Putin's meeting with the leaders of China, the leaders of India, the leaders of Brazil. Um, is Putin actually losing or is this a long-term threat and he's realigning the world? So this is a long-term threat. The, uh, the war in Ukraine uh, has devolved to one of attrition. It's not going to be over tomorrow. It is going to um, last a long time. Yeah, Russia has been humiliated um, given the Ukrainian successes. Uh, their memory is going to be long. Um, and so this is going to be with us for, uh, for some time. And we've got, to, uh, we've got to maintain our resolve. Us as the, as the West, as the group of like-minded, uh, friendly nations who share common values. And, and those values uh, are based in the rules-based international order. And we've got to continue to protect that uh, because, you know, my fear and the fear of many of my counterparts, and, and recently over the last number of weeks, I've had many engagements around the world with my counterparts. The threat of great power war is, is as uh, high as it has been in many, many years. Is that right? Meaning what? Is that a nuclear war? Is that great powers with Russia, U.S. or U.S. China? Yes. And is it nuclear? Yes to all of the above. Really? So we are seeing um, rhetoric about the use of nuclear weapons that we haven't seen in you know, perhaps decades, if not longer. Uh, we are seeing the norms of uh, territorial integrity, as we've seen with the Russian invasion of, U uh, of Ukraine, uh, completely disregarded. So again, the world may view this as a turning point, and, and we need to be ready. Let's talk about specifically Canada. Um, Canada's involved in Ukraine. We're, we're, we're supplying artillery and, and certain kind of weapons. Um, they need more, and it's long-term. Do we even have the capacity to fight a long-term war just from a supply chain, getting the 
getting the armaments to the Ukrainians that they need. How challenging is that and what more can and should Canada do? So this is a great point, one that all of our allies are facing. Uh, it's the ability to have the stocks on hand to fight a high intensity war. Um, we, we, we took our eye off the ball after the Cold War in terms of maintaining war stocks. And industry right now does not have the capacity to rapidly ramp up. And, and so we need to be able to do this as a, uh, as a team. Uh, with with, with uh, the government, with industry, to get those stocks in place. How do we do it? Yeah, good question. I'm not a procurement expert, but uh, we, we absolutely have to find some way of increasing that capacity. Canada has just committed uh, close to $5 billion to over the next six years to upgrade our uh, NORAD system. It's basically stuff from the 80s. It does not capture the threats of hypersonic missiles, long-range cruise missiles. Uh, I know we're supposed to upgrade it. How long will that take? And in the meantime, how vulnerable are we to those kind of uh, missiles that you know, countries even like North Korea are testing? So that announcement was welcome, you know, much needed uh, to, uh, to modernize uh, NORAD. Um, how long is it going to take? Well, we, we need to build the implementation plan. And the, the very important component of this is R&D, uh, research and development. Because the technology is advancing so fast, because adversaries are developing uh, these, these new technologies, these new weapon systems so, so fast, it's going to be a, 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 a series of uh, constant adaptations. Uh, changing sensors, building on sensors. Um, but this is only one domain of continental defense. That is the air domain. We also need to look at the other domains. Space, cyber, uh, uh, maritime, surface, and especially subsurface, and then land. Louise Arbour, retired Supreme Court judge, uh, done, an, as you know, um, the another report on sexual harassment abuse inside the military. It's been dogging the military, frankly. Um, she said there should be an external monitor should be appointed immediately to oversee the recommendations of the report. It has been a month since the report. Nothing has happened. Why not? Well, nothing has happened uh, publicly, but I will tell you behind the scenes, the team continues to work very hard with the minister, the minister's office to, uh, uh, to get one uh, appointed. You know, and I, for one, as the chief of defense staff, welcome. Um, an external set of eyes uh, on us to, uh, to ensure that we are incorporating views uh, from outside the institution. But it's still not done, so, so when will it be done? Like, well, when, when can we expect it? Soon? It's only been a month, and I'm not going to commit the minister to timelines here because it's, uh, it's, it's beyond me. How hard have these reports made rec recruitment? How much has this damaged your potential to recruit and retain? So we don't have empirical data yet. Um, you know, much like any other industry in this country, we're facing workforce challenges. Um, but it, can't, uh, it cannot have helped in terms of attracting, um, attracting young Canadians, uh, Canadians of, of, of all stripes to, uh, to our organization. You know, I will tell you though, we are making change. Uh, we are changing this institution for the better because we absolutely have to. We have to be able to attract and retain Canadians from all segments. Um, you know, I go back to our initial uh, discussion about the changing world. You know, Canada is going to need its military more and more in the dangerous years that live ahead. So we owe it uh, to this country to be able to attract and retain the best. Just on that note, are you, we don't, you have to now prepare for the worst. You, you're not a political guy. You're just a contingency guy. Mm -hmm. uh, so if we don't know if we're going to end up in Ukraine or not. So far, no, thank goodness, but maybe they will. Is Canada prepared? to send men and women into battle in places like, are you prepared? If, they, if policy changes, would we be prepared to go to the front lines? 
So we are the nation's ultimate insurance policy, and we always plan for the worst course, or worst uh, worst case, worst course of action. Um, are we prepared? Yes. Do we have everything we need that I would like? No. Uh, no military commander in history has had everything that they want, but I can say that there are critical shortfalls that we need to address in the short term. Uh, shortfalls like uh, um, ammunition stocks, shortfalls like key capabilities like air defense, like counter um, uh, UAS, uh, counter drone uh, technologies. Right. Um, weapon systems like that. General, uh, first of all, thanks for the time, thanks for your service, and um, good luck. No, thank you. All right, coming up, conservative change-up. Can a new leader bring stability to a party divided? And how can the Conservative Party find balance between populism and conservatism? The interim leader of that party, Candace Bergen, joins us next. Stay right here with Question Period. A new conservative chapter. By the end of the summer, the Conservative Party of Canada will have a new leader for the fourth time in two tumultuous years. The key question, what direction will the party take? Candace Bergen has been the interim leader since February after the majority of the Conservative caucus voted to remove Aaron O'Toole. But the current leadership race to replace him has been nasty and divisive with allegations of cheating, fights over membership numbers and debate over what it means to be a conservative. Now, in the past week, over 20 Conservative MPs met with some former leaders of the trucker protest. So what kind of party is it right now? Let's find out. Joining now, the interim leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, Candace Bergen. Good to see you. Thanks, Evan. Good to see you. There's lots left. I know your mandate ends September 10th. As Parliament rises, the big issue is inflation, 7.7%, the highest it's been in 40 years. The Conservatives have called for suspending the GST tax. Now... That would give consumers relief at the pump. But I did speak to the parliamentary budget officer a few days ago, and he said, look, it wouldn't materially lower the inflation rate. It would help consumers a little, but it wouldn't. What, in your view, in your party's view, would materially lower the inflation rate? Well, we, we realize there are some factors that have uh, happened globally that have affected inflation, but we also believe that this government's fiscal policy overall has has poured gas on it, certainly prepared it to uh, to be worse than it had to be. So we, we believe strongly that spending has to come under control. Uh, we were very clear in the last budget that we didn't think more spending and bigger programs was the answer. So overall, we'd like to see a, a strong signal and actually action from the government that there going to stop this out of control spending but we do believe giving Canadians a break at the pumps would be positive and also show that they recognize taxing Canadians and uh, and, and and just to benefit themselves isn't the answer right now the Conservatives are calling for the resignation of Marco Mendicino the public safety minister um, over the emergencies act right uh, do you over his misleading yeah well that's Canadians. it do you think yes. when he said i was acting on the advice of police that he willfully misled parliament do you think he did he didn't just he, he he's a former prosecutor he understands how important words are he import he understands it's important to be precise he didn't just say it once he didn't just say uh you know one time we talked to police and they suggested he used it as his argument more times than i think we can even recall or try to bring up on on media for example this was his, one of their main arguments police were asking for it we now found out that is not true that's not the only area where he misled he said that there was foreign funding foreign funding uh, funded the protests. that wasn't true they made accusations against the protesters that they set fires 
in apartment buildings in Ottawa. That was not true. Marco Medocino basically said a lot of things. He was very loose with the truth, spread misinformation. But on whether the police asked for it or not, that was vital. That was key. And he misled Canadians. The and, police and listen, said they didn't he, ask for it, but they uh, needed it. And, the, and so that, I spoke well, to well, Steve so, Bell, and he I, said he needed it. He well, said it helped, he, but he didn't sure, ask for it. That, but that, you don't bring the Emergencies Act because it helped. There is a very high threshold for invoking the Emergencies Act on Canadians. We've always said that we did not believe that the government would meet that threshold. Okay, um, I want to talk about the um, RCMP, the investigation into the worst mass murder in Canadian history. The um, commission investigating that recently put out uh, notes from Superintendent Campbell, who said he was in a meeting in the days after the horrific shooting and in his notes, he said that Brenda Lucky, the commissioner of the RCMP, said that she had promised the prime minister's office and the minister of public safety that she, that, um, she had said, we need to release the information about the perpetrator's weapon. He said, no, it would jeopardize the uh, investigation, and he didn't do it. Um, do you think that there should be an independent investigation into Brenda Lucky because the minister has denied he ever said that, the prime minister has denied he's ever said that? Uh, who, do you tr who do you believe? Well, this is a pattern with this government. Um, they've interfered in investigations before when it was to their political advantage. So, uh, you know, m again, I'm not here to hold Brenda Lucky to account. I'm here to hold the government to account. Uh, I, I believe uh, the superintendent, when he says that Brenda Lucky told him and his officers that they needed to relay a certain message because she was obligated or had told the government that she would help them with their uh, political agenda. It's very disturbing, it's uh, concerning, and frankly, I, I, I don't believe the government when they say they didn't interfere. Just in the last week, over 20 members of your party met with two, one person, James Topp, who was not part of the trucker convoy. I've spoken to him, he's a veteran, he's marched across Canada about mandates. But he, they also met with a guy named Tom Marazzo, who was a spokesperson, um, also a veteran, by the way, who I've spoken to. Um, this is a guy that stood in a press conference during the convoy and said he'd like to work in a coalition with your part, party, the Bloc, the NDP, to try to form a government. What does it tell Canadians that someone like you were with the truckers, who took pictures, many of your members, and now here we are, 20 members, almost 20% of your caucus is out there essentially saying, uh, as one member said, we're allies, you have their support. What does that tell you? We very much support Canadians who are, uh, were and still are against the mandatory vaccines. We don't believe that they should be wedged, called names, stigmatized. We don't think they should be set aside. Our job is to listen to Canadians. We don't always have to agree, even with what they're talking about. We don't agree with everything that they want to do. But obviously, you lend credibility no. to people who are well, who are holding sorry, press conferences Evan, that are that are, that are trying to say we we want to form a government that would not be democratically Evan, elected. Evan, these these people obviously do not understand. They, I, I don't think any sedition charges were laid, were they? We're, we're, no, we're, they they were not. But it doesn't have they, to be. But there are lots of charges laid against some of the some of the. But Protest. I think, I think this, is the, this is the misinformation what's, that, that, that's being spread. The people who protested here in Ottawa were, there were, as you know, hundreds and thousands of them. They were upset. They wanted to be heard. And we as Conservatives believe that they deserve to be heard. In a recent post, a senior member of your party, Michelle Rempel, who's been, who's been a critic, Michelle Rempel Garner, wrote why she didn't decide to run mm -hmm. to replace Jason Kenney. And she wrote like this, almost 3,000 words. 
And she said in both parties, the United Conservative Party of Alberta and the Federal Party, there have been squabbles that have erupted in the pages of national media, public meltdowns, nearly missed physical fights, coups, smear jobs, leaked recordings, confidential emails, lack of consensus on critical <laughs> issues, caucus turfings, people harassed to the point where they resign roles, hour-long meeting where members have been subjected to hours of public castigation, heated exchanges to get to basic concerns, unjustified insularity, exclusionary cliques. She said in other workplaces this would be treated as a violation of labor codes. What do we make to believe that? Michelle wow. Rumpel-Garner is describing yeah. what's going on in your party like that. What is your reaction? Is that accurate? I'm, I'm absolutely shocked. You'll have to ask her. I, I'll tell you, we have had an amazing last six months. Uh, and, you know, even when we do disagree, and there's been, yeah, there's been, there's been squabbles, but my message to caucus is we can disagree and still be united. I, I think this message, even in Canada, you know, Evan, we see this politics of wedge divide, uh, identity politics, and I've been very, very open in our party. Let's not do that. Let's let each other have different opinions on different issues. To? And like, not, you're going to have to ask Michelle. So you don't think it's accurate? Have to ask when she said, no, so we've had an incredible. Okay, so you don't uh, think uh, we, we do want to be in government because squabbles. we want to be. This we want to help Canadians. We want to help Canadians. I no, I've not uh, not experienced that. Okay, so that's not an accurate depiction. It might be hers. It might be her. I I I, I cannot speak. Come on, Evan. I'm not going to speak for Michelle. You you have to ask her. The United States Supreme Court just overturned Roe v. Wade on Friday. Um, this is a significant moment. Um, what is your reaction to that? And what is your reaction on the potential Canadian impact on that? Well, a couple of things. First of all, nothing has changed in Canada. Uh, this is something that's going on in the U.S. But, and, I, and I understand it. I think it stirs up a lot of feelings on on, on many sides on this, this issue. And I would say there's not just one or two sides. This is a very, very difficult issue. And as a woman, I can tell you, it stirs up feelings of emotions, uh, good feelings, bad feelings. It, it, it's not just about our reproductive health. It's about our heart and our soul and our emotions. Uh, but Canada, nothing has changed. And I will tell you this, under previous leaders, Stephen Harper, every leader I've run under, we have uh, made the commitment that conservatives would not bring up the abortion issue or change laws. All right, I got to leave it there. Uh, I know we'll have more conversations before September 10th. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. All right, still to come, border threats. Will the U.S. Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade have an impact in Canada? And will the U.S. turn to Canada to help bring down the price of gas? The United States Ambassador to Canada, David Cohen, joins us next. Stay right here with Question Period. In a stunning but not surprising decision, the U.S. Supreme Court has overturned the Roe v. Wade decision, which protected a woman's access to abortion services in the U.S. The question is, will that fight now come across the border? After all, Canada and the U.S. share many things beside that border, including problems of inflation, high gas prices, and security. But is there anything our two countries are working on together to help? To talk about that and more, I went to see the U.S. Ambassador David Cohen at his residence on Friday. Now, he's only been on the job for seven months, but his agenda is already packed with war, trade, and the most pressing issue of all, inflation. Ambassador Cohen, first of all, pleasure to see you. Thanks for inviting us in. Well, thanks for, thanks for inviting me on the show, and it's a pleasure to host you here at Lornado, a little different. This, is my, this will be the first interview for me in the 
um, historic Mineta, the residence for the U.S. ambassador to Canada. And it's, and it's a marvelous place. We are in a time, both in the U.S. and in Canada, at inflation at 40-year highs, 7.7% um, here. It's affecting Americans at the pump and at the grocery store and Canadians. Uh, a lot of it, everyone says it's about supply chains. What is the U.S. and Canada doing together explicitly to help people fight inflation? So, um, you know, inflation is, is clearly the dominant economic issue of the day in both the United States and in Canada. The economy, the macro economy is larger than any government, any official, and it's just not something that you can wave a magic wand and make inflation go away. It's a huge macroeconomic force. That said, there are a bundle of tactics and, and strategies that government writ large can and should execute in inflationary times. And the first of, of all of those is a central banking function. Um, it's, I'm, I'm not an elected official, so I'm allowed to say this. It is true that the major responsibility for managing macroeconomic forces in the economy like inflation is a central bank function. It's not a presidential or prime minister function. It's been, by the way, political. A lot of people say the central banks, both in your country and Canada, blew it because they didn't ease back quick enough, and that's right. why that's why we're in the panic. And when you say, I agree with you that it's become politicized, but I don't think some of that criticism is political. I think the criticism is by other serious economists who look at this issue and say the central bank should have done something differently. Then you've got elected officials taking that comment and politicizing it. So those are, I think those are two different stages of the same, of the same particular issue. But so there's central banking policy, simplest and things we've already seen is raising, is raising the interest rate. Um, and then there are, then there are, we can go to all the way to the other end of the spectrum and you look at some of the root causes of inflation like, um, like prices at the gas pump, like we mentioned earlier. And so you see micro tactics that, that countries are considering whether it's releases from the strategic oil reserves to increase the supply of oil. After all, price at the gas pump is ultimately a product of supply and demand. Canadians listening to you on that, you know what they're thinking. They're thinking, my God, Joe Biden's about to go to Saudi Arabia to say, please release more oil. They're and I know Canada's got 300,000 more barrels, and I know that the U.S. is the biggest customer, but your friendliest neighbor had a pipeline called Keystone that Christian Freeland, when she met with Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, raised again, said, you shouldn't have canceled that because now the world's different. You've got problems in Russia. We have supply. It's reliable. Was it a mistake for Joe Biden to cancel Keystone given where the world is now, which would have helped in this situation your consumer and our consumer? So um, I hope this isn't headline news. Um, after all, I'm Joe Biden's friend and his representative in Canada. But Joe Biden absolutely did not make a mistake in canceling the Keystone Pipeline. Um, and I can, we, don't, we don't have enough time to run through every argument there. But we're talking about inflation, which is fair. 
as Joe Biden has said, it is the number one issue the United States faces. But it is not the only issue. And energy is not the only issue that Canada or the United States faces. You could argue that climate change is the existential issue of our generation. And that unless we get a hold of climate change and get a hold of the impacts of climate change quickly, we are going to cause irreversible damage to our environment. And by the way, that is, that is something that has a tremendous Canadian implication because of the adverse impact on the Arctic from runaway climate change. And if you are Joe Biden and you're the president of the United States, and frankly, if you're the prime minister of Canada, you have to juggle not just inflation, no matter how important the issue is, not just prices of gasoline at the gas pump, but you have to focus on the whole range of issues that confronts your country. Right? And I, I appreciate that, Ambassador. So, but is Keystone the tipping point? I guess for I, a lot of folks, they say, look, you're, you're buying from Saudi Arabia. Buy from a, the world's changed when Russia's invaded Ukraine. This is a friendly option to transition. And the oil sands are committed to transition. So the United States already purchases 62% of its oil from Canada. I mean, 62% of the oil we purchase comes from Canada already. And the, the numbers just don't support that even if Keystone were functioning, and if Joe Biden hadn't pulled the plug on Keystone, it wouldn't be functioning today. So it would have no current impact on inflation in the United States as a result of fuel oil prices. But if saving our climate, if saving the Arctic, of making sure that we come to grips with, uh, we come to grips with the, with the incredibly dangerous adverse impacts of climate change, well, that may be a price that is worth paying. Let me switch for a minute. Uh, on Friday, as we're speaking, the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. This is not a surprise. It was actually leaked. There are lots of, the, the court, of course, most of the judges are conservative Republican judges. What is the significance for women and globally that, that Roe v. Wade and access to abortion rights are no longer constitutionally protected in your country? So, as you say, this is not a surprise, um, but that doesn't mean that it is not a major disappointment. Um, you know, the significance of Roe versus Wade is that for 50 years, um, these rights were deemed to be constitutionally protected. I think it is a tremendous blow for what is a very important constitutional right for women in the United States. I remind everyone, but I'll be very careful about this because I'll be back in six months, um, that, the, that the Supreme Court decision today did not make abortion illegal. What they did is it removed the constitutional protection, as you said. So this now becomes a matter of individual states to determine the rules that will apply to, abor to abortion. So in a sense, the battlefield has shifted to a different governmental level. In the United States, the reason I want to be careful is because you've got such a large number of states under conservative, usually Republican, um, control where I think abortion rights will be, will likely be restricted. Number of states have passed what are called trigger ordinances that essentially do prohibit abortion if the Supreme Court acts when, so those provisions have essentially been implicated. So this is a, this is not a good day for, for women, for treatment of women. Um, it is not a good day for our respect for 
for for women um, and for their and for their right to choose what happens with their own body. All right, that's part one of our conversation. But coming up next, how concerned was the U.S. about the trucker blockade and the economic damage? And what should be done about the illegal guns flowing across the U.S. border? We talk about that and more with the U.S. Ambassador to Canada, David Cohen, next. Stay right here with Question Period. The trucker blockades in February dominated international headlines and prompted the federal government in Canada to invoke the controversial Emergencies Act. But just how concerned was Canada's biggest trading partner, the U.S., especially when the busiest border crossing in the continent, the Ambassador Bridge in Windsor, was shut down? In part two of our conversation with the U.S. Ambassador to Canada, David Cohen, he pulls back the curtain on the U.S. concerns and weighs in on the problem of illegal guns coming across the border. Can you pull back the curtain for us, Ambassador, in February when we had the trucker protests both in the capital here, across the country, but for the U.S. specifically on the Ambassador Bridge. And we are in a debate here intensely about the necessity of the Emergencies Act. Was the U.S. government and pressuring Canada to resolve this because of the economic consequence on cross-border trade to get this resolved? So um, the little bit of that question mixes some apples and oranges. I, I don't want to get into the internal Canadian debate on the propriety of invocation of the Emergencies Act. But I have no problem saying that the threat to trade and commerce between the United States and Canada as a result of, the, of blockades at points of entry, particularly in Windsor at the Ambassador Bridge, which is where the largest single implication was, talking about a few hundred million dollars a day of black of block trade and so there was a high level of concern there were repetitive high level conversations with Christopher Freeland with multiple ministers in the Canadian government with members of the cabinet I was personally involved in in many of those discussions the White House got involved um, so it was a matter of serious concern but nobody in the United States to the best of my knowledge, ever said to Canada, you must resolve this problem. But it was critical. It, it was the, critical US, the U.S. took it seriously. It was very serious. It should have been taken seriously, and it was taken seriously. Guns. The tragedy in Uvalde, Texas was just one of the latest. It was horrific. I know finally there's bipartisan support for some kind of gun control, not as much as Joe Biden wanted. In Canada here, there's also a move to have more gun regulation. But the debate in Canada is that the gun problem is coming from the United States. It's illegal guns coming over the border from the U.S. What is the U.S. doing to help Canada stop the flow of illegal guns from your country into this country? So I don't want to be provocative, but I don't know that there's enough evidence that the gun violence problem that is experienced in Canada is due either solely or maybe even primarily to illegal guns um, in the United States coming over to Canada. Because the fact of the matter is that there's not very good data on that question. It's become sort of accepted conventional wisdom, but not based on data. Okay. But I don't, it may be true. I'm just right. saying okay. I haven't seen data to support that. But the answer to the question is that the U.S. And, the Can and Canada have to cooperate on cutting down on illegal guns coming into Canada if they are or if they aren't. We 
have a, we've had multiple collaborations and discussions about gun tracing and how we trace and how we can help Canada do its gun tracing because Canada just doesn't have the capacity the the RCMP just doesn't have the capacity to trace all of the guns. The United States has offered to help with that. And so it's part of a high-level collaboration around gun violence, all designed to crack down on the importation of illegal handguns, whether it's from the United States or elsewhere coming into Canada. January 6th hearing, we've been watching those about the assault on the nation's capital. Here in Canada, there's more concerns of another convoy coming around Canada Day. What do you make? Is there a threat to democracies from a rising populism? Uh, or is this kind of an event that will pass? Or is it a deeper concern? So I, I, think, that, I think that question is an incredibly important question. I do think in the United States, in Canada, in all of the world's democracies, there is a disturbing growth of a, of extremism, populist movements, usually coming from the hard right. I mean, we see it in Germany, we see it in Brazil, we see it in the UK, um, we see it in the United States, we see it in Canada. It is, a, it is a real threat and a real trend. I think a lot of it is based on misinformation and is fueled by disinformation on social media. I think as a result, it is an extremely complicated question. And we sit here around the Independence Day holiday in the United States in a country that was where was, was born on democratic ideals and, and freedom of expression. And it's, a, it's just an interesting time to reflect on what the future of democracy is in the United States and, and elsewhere. So you're talking to someone who is a democracy optimist. I firmly believe that democracy will prevail, it will survive, and that ultimately democracy will beat back autocracy. A Philadelphia until the end. Thanks, Ambassador. Thank you again. Thanks for coming. Thanks for letting us do this here. <laughs>